0: Everybody and welcome to our online worship experience. My name is Peyton Minzmeyer. I'm one of the ministers here at the Vero Beach Church of Christ, and I have a question for you. Starting off this lesson, what is morality? What is pure and impure? What is right and what is wrong? You see, these are some of the most important questions we can be asking right now in a world where it seems like morality is uh, is eroding beneath us where it seems like values are always changing. There's a popular TV show on Netflix. It's called Stranger Things. Any Steve fans out there? And if you're not a big fan of it or you don't really know what Stranger Things is or who Steve is, it is an 80s kids-driven nostalgia show that follows the adventures of some young kids as they defend their world and defeat evil forces that live in an upside-down world. It's a world that looks just like ours, only it's filled with death and decay and destruction and, of course, evil creatures. And church, I don't know about you, but whenever I look out on our world, it often feels like we're living in the upside-down. It's like every new day brings on a whole new set of challenges and issues that I'm having to face personally. It reminds me of the words of Isaiah and the words that he spoke to his generation speak to ours too. In chapter five, verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The very foundations of our society seem to be crumbling underneath us. And I believe it's because people have lost their way. We have stopped believing that the Bible is the true word of God that has value for my life today, that, that there are absolute truths here that can sustain me and ground me in the chaos of life. But our world is slowly drifting away from absolutes, from absolute truths. No, rather in today's world, it's moral relativism that rules the day. The idea of you do you and I'll do me. And what you believe is right is right for you. And what I believe is right is right for me. And don't you ever tell me what I should believe. And I'll never tell you what you should believe. And we'll just get on with our lives the best we can. And now the results of that are seen in the massive problems we see around us as the world seems to be breaking down. It's why in our schools, they can hand out condoms but they can't talk about the sanctity of the nuclear family unit. It's why today people can indulge in any type of parade celebrating anything they want these days, but the person who's preaching and talking about Jesus on the beach or the street corner, they're ridiculed. How about this for a statistic? These days, 67% of Americans, over half of Americans don't believe there is a true right and a true wrong. That means, based off of that statistic, that half of the people watching this video, you right now, maybe you don't believe that there is a true right and a true wrong. An even scarier statistic, 87% of young Americans believe that morality is relevant to the individual, meaning you get to choose what is morally right in your circles and I'll do the same for my circles. And we live and we breathe in this kind of world and yet we're surprised for some reason, when violent riots break out. We're surprised when people, seemingly without conscience, are able to murder another individual. We're appalled whenever we hear about young boys who are making bets with each other of how many girls they can have sex with in a certain amount of time. Again, going to a prophet who was speaking on his society, but it just echoes our own. Jeremiah, he says, Were they ashamed whenever they committed these abominations? No, of course they weren't ashamed. They didn't even blush. Look at it on our world. Does our world seem ashamed or embarrassed at the state that it's in? No, of course not. They don't even know. They don't even know what, what's wrong with the world that they're living in or the wrong that they're living in. It's commonplace in a world. Where you do you and I'll do me. And if your mind isn't taking you back to our previous series in Genesis, check your pulse. A people who choose their own wisdom over God's leads to violence and destruction and death and decay. And here's the scariest part of it all. We as Christians may not be in this fight, but we sure do love to feed the beasts who are fighting. We're not of this world. No, no, we can separate ourselves from this world, but oh man, it sure is nice watching the world spiral out of control every once in a while. I don't know if it makes us feel better about our positioning, but here's what I mean. We can sit in church or watch it over the television, and, and and we can we can say things like, yeah, divorce, something we should avoid at all costs. We try to stay, you know, we we value marriage, sexual immorality, absolutely not. No, ow, get that out of here. Yes, preacher, keep preaching. That's what we like to hear. But then after you finish watching this, you're going to go watch that TV show that indulges and idolizes those two very things. It's why a couple months ago, whenever I preached about the image of God, about all people made in God's image, doesn't matter their race, the color of their skin, their ethnicity, what they believe, and we nod our head, yes, absolutely, I want to believe that because I'm a Christian, and that's what it means to be a Christian, to believe those kind of things, and yet, we can find it in ourselves, either over coffee or on a Facebook post to completely dehumanize another human being who's running against my political party. Let's go a little more practical. It's why sports consumption is at an all-time high. And it's not just sports, it's all entertainment. And it's not just that we're consuming it at a greater rate, maybe we're trying to numb some empty feeling that we're feeling, maybe it's, we're trying to numb ourselves from the chaos in our lives or our families, I don't know. But it's not just the consumption, but it's the trajectory that the violence and gore and and lust and sex, and it's like everything is amped up. And for some reason, we're just not shocked at it anymore. In fact, I believe people have become shockproof. Nothing surprises us. We want more. We want more extreme. We want more scandalous. And I worry that we as Christians are not much different. And so maybe part of that is getting back to some of the absolute truths that if you're watching this online, if you go up a little bit um, in our online feed, you'll see some absolute truths that if you were here in person with us, we chanted out loud, we repeated out loud to each other, reminding each other of some absolute truths. But I believe more than I believe we need to do more than just hold ourselves to some absolute truths. We need to start believing that this word of God It's not some antiquated book that collects dust on my shelf, but it has real value for me today. We need to start believing with our whole heart that Jesus has the transformative power to do something in this world and in our community, to change something, but not just in the world and not just in the community, but in my heart and my mind as well. Do you believe that? Today, we're going to see How Jesus waded into the upside down world and he turned things upside down. And when Jesus gave this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to be in for the next couple of months, he was living in a world that's not that much different than ours today. A a world that was ruled with the same mantra of moral relativism of, I, I will just decide and pick and choose of God's standards what I want to do and I'll just substitute my own words in there. A people who had a distorted view of what was right and what was wrong. People who were so focused on what was on the outside that they forgot to pay attention to what was happening on the inside. So Jesus is going to set the record straight. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So notice what Jesus does first here is he, he emphasizes the trueness of God's law on the human life. Here's what I mean by that. When Jesus says the law and the prophets, he has something very particular in mind. First, we're thinking of the law, the commands given to an ancient Israel thousands of years ago, you know, 10 of them, I mean, you know them. We we have a big deal when they want to take them away from our Capitol building, but the majority of us might have a hard time actually reciting them. But that's beside the point. The Ten Commandments, but we often forget that there's also 603 commandments that follow those. So 613 commandments that God gave Israel. So that's the law. But then you have the prophets and you can just, we've already mentioned a couple of them. Isaiah, Jeremiah, you have ones like Elijah. Basically, Jesus is saying here, the first three quarters of your Bible. So, if you grab your Bible and you just kind of pinch that, we call that the Old Testament. And Jesus is making more than just a theological statement here. You know, just one that, you know, we have fun talking about it, but it doesn't have real value for me today. No, he's talking about something real practical here. Maybe you've had this question before yourself. Do I listen to the Ten Commandments? Do I listen to the words of Jesus? Is there some kind of formula between the two that I'm not aware of yet? And we have to understand Jesus sets the record pretty straight here. Jesus, the faithful son, does not deviate from his understanding that the law is truly God's law. In fact, Jesus could have written a psalm like Psalm 119, which reads, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walks in the law of the Lord, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Jesus was once asked by an earnest yet misguided young man, how do I receive eternal life? And he responded to him, keep the law. Now, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. But here's a statement for you. If you're taking notes, if you have a journaling Bible and you want to write down, write it on your arm so you don't forget. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law, but he also came, and here's why this matters to me. Here's why this whole sermon matters to me right here. Jesus came to fulfill the heart of the law. Church, we don't realize this, but we are very similar to the Pharisees and the issues they were dealing with. We buy into this lie that we can achieve a certain amount of holiness by the things that we do. Like, if I can reach that level of spirituality, then I will be seen as righteous right in God's eyes. And so, and so we go down the list. We'll say, okay, well, I go to church. Yeah, I don't go every week, but, you know, I, I go out of town once a week, go to the lake, go spend time on the ocean. So it's, you know, three times a week, you know, as more than, you know, average, average times I go. I read my Bible. Yeah, yeah, I read my Bible. Um, at definitely at church. And then I see social posts pop up. And so that's reading my Bible. And, you know, that, that's good enough. And then I pray. I definitely pray. Yeah. uh, Every meal, I bless the food. And then when I put my kids to bed, I pray then. And I'm generally a good person. Yeah. Okay. That's what it means to be a Christian to us. You know, I kind of go down the list. I do these things the best I can with my schedule right now. And that's what sets me apart. But Jesus, Jesus wanted to do more. You see, you think you do good by going to church and it's a good thing, but Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus wants to do more. And so God is not just with you once a week, whenever you go to to the church building, but he's living in your heart, walking with you in all of your moments. You think you do good by reading the Bible, and that is a good thing, but Jesus came to do more than that. He didn't come to abolish that. He came to fulfill it so that you can do something better, better than just reading it. You can live it. It's walking with you, and it's written not just on stone tablets, not just written in a book that collects dust throughout the week. It's written on your very heart. And before we go any further, we need to revisit and remember where we've been. Right at the end of our Genesis series, we came upon a family. Now, if, if you were to read the rest of the story, Jesus or God is going to take this family and he's going to call them out of all the other people. He's going to make a covenant with them and say, you are going to be the ones to bless all of the other people and nations. You just have to follow my commandments and my covenant that I'm making with you. Well, those people fail. They become a nation and they fail over and over again. And so God says, "Okay, if you're not going to listen to me, I'll let you fall into the hands of your enemies. And we know that story with Pharaoh in Egypt. They're there for generations after generation. And finally, God listens to their cries, leads them out of Egypt. We love those stories as kids. Leads them out of Egypt all the way through the wilderness to the base of a mountain. Our man Moses goes up to the mountain, gets the Ten Commandments, O and 603 others, comes down, and God says, these commands, this law, the one we've been talking about, this is going to set you apart. It's going to distinguish you from all the other nations so that you can bless them. And then I can sum up the next 600 years using two words. They fail. They fail. They fail. Over and over, this pattern continues. God holds up his side of the deal. Humans do not. And so, what is God going to do? He decides to bring about a new kind of relationship with his people. And it's going to be different. It's going to be different. Different. Here's that covenant Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 33. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for, I, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now, don't miss this because it's hugely practical for what we're going through and what we're talking about this morning. A new distinct covenant is being made and the terms of the relationship are going to be different than they were before. They're going to be different than they were before. Now, are we doing away with the law and the commands? No, no, we're not. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but their role is changing No longer are they going to be something written for you to obey, written down so that you can obey them and then God will be happy with you. But God is going to do something to embed them and internalize them on the hearts of his people. And that embedded knowledge is expressed through a relationship. I will be their God. They will be my people. It's like they're just going to know. They're just going to know what to do because our connection and our closeness is so strong that obedience becomes less of a duty and more of a joy. It just flows out of me. It's my very nature. Another way to say this is that we must aim to be the kind of person to whom the deeds of the law naturally flow. Think of it this way. The apple tree naturally and easily produces apples. Why? because it's an apple tree (laughs) it doesn't know any better and if it started producing oranges it would be an orange tree because that's its nature that's who it is so my question for you what do you naturally and easily produce what kind of tree are you do you naturally and easily produce a terrible hatred for those who cut you off or drive 10 under the speed limit whenever you have that meeting or that important thing to get to Do you easily and naturally produce a lustful pause as you scroll through your social media feed and you see that girl who's showing a little too much skin than she should? Do you naturally and easily produce a nagging daydream to leave your family or at least just your spouse to figure out what it means again to be single and free? You see, God shouldn't have to compel us to obey him. What happens then is he compels us to obey, we fail, and then we are struck with grief and guilt, and then we cry out to God, and then we go back to the beginning, and we just jump into this never-ending cycle with God, and God says, I want something different than that. I want a renovation of the heart. I want my people to know me, and what I want obedience just to come naturally to them. And if I'm honest with myself, and I look at my heart, I know that's not the kind of tree I am. So, how on earth is God going to do this? To transform our hearts so that obedience is not just, it's not something that we have to work for. It just comes natural. And he's already said it at the end of Jeremiah. Check this out again. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. I want you to imagine a relationship, a special relationship with you have, a spouse, a family member, a parent. And I want you to imagine you in that relationship, you do something that's just wrong and you hurt the other person. Maybe you say something quick-witted, maybe you snap at them, maybe you uh, cheat them in some way, whatever it is, you lie to them, you hurt them, and you know you've hurt them and they've done nothing to earn it. And their response, you're met with love and forgiveness immediately. Now, if you have a wife as awesome as I think my wife is, then you know this feeling. You say something hurtful and they wrap you in their arms and they realize that something deeper is happening here and they love you and they'll cry or talk or do whatever it takes to work through it with you. And whenever you've had that experience, you know that there is a bond formed in that relationship that can't be formed any other way. It's a bond that's completely, it's a relationship and a bond in relationship that's completely unnatural. Anger, lust, selfishness, pride, those come naturally for us. Forgiveness is unnatural. And God is going to move towards his people with such a grand level of forgiveness that all of a sudden the commands, the commands of the law to obey, they're no longer something you have to obey, that you have to, you know, hurt yourself or strictly discipline yourself to obey, but through the renovation of a heart, obedience is going to simply become natural to us. And it's that promise, the promise that we find in Jeremiah, it's that promise that Jesus sees himself picking up and bringing into reality. Jesus sees himself bringing about and forming the Jeremiah 31 people the people of a new covenant. And he said so himself at the last supper when he took the wine and he said, this cup is a symbol. It's a new covenant of my blood. Jesus sees himself enacting God's forgiveness coming towards people because Jesus isn't going to wait for tax collectors and sex workers to repent and, and go to the temple and make sacrifices before they can approach him. No, he is going to wade into their life. It's a preemptive strike of grace that they didn't deserve, I don't deserve, and you don't deserve. And the extraordinary thing about those moments with Jesus and these tax collectors and these sex workers is that they knew exactly what Jesus was about. Jesus never hid his nature from them or his call for repentance and following the way of God, but it didn't matter for these people. They witnessed something in him. He loved them and had mercy on them and respected them for who they were. He, he, he surrounded himself with them and it attracted them. And all of a sudden, these people, they began to witness love and grace of Jesus. They began questioning and wanting more and their hearts and their minds It started getting all twisted and boom, that's it. That's what we're talking about. That's the renovation of the heart that we're looking for. Let me give you a helpful illustration that might help you for the next six weeks as we work through the next section of Jesus' sermon. It's the ethical teachings of Jesus, six weeks with six major commands. Let me ask this, how many of you have ever learned to play an instrument before? Maybe if you're watching this on YouTube or another video, you can put in the comments of what kind of instrument you've learned to play. And if you haven't learned to play an instrument, you can still play along with this illustration. Maybe you've learned a language or picked up a new hobby. Those basic things will apply here, but I'm just gonna focus in on music. Whenever you learned to first started learning to play an instrument, what was that experience like? <laughs> it's been so long for some of us, maybe we forgot, but we spent weeks and weeks learning the foundational rules of music and that instrument, and that comes in the form of practicing scales for the most part. So I began learning to play the piano. Uh, and I haven't practiced in over six months, so forgive me. But I remember when I first started learning, and my poor wife, I'm terrible, and she had to listen to me butcher, the, the, butcher through the same three songs and then practice my scales over and over and over again. She must have been driving crazy because I'm terrible. Honestly, I'm, I'm terrible. But whenever you learn to play an instrument, it's, it's fun. What I learned is that it's fun for about the first month, maybe two. But then it's extremely boring because what you're doing is you're taking something that's not your nature and you're acquiring a new set of instincts. Like you're learning what sounds happen when you place your fingers in certain places at certain moments and have certain points and you're practicing it so often it's becoming intuitive and it's just torture. (laughs) And if you've never learned an instrument, you have no idea what we're talking about, but it's torture. But the idea is that you spend weeks, maybe months, memorizing this new nature, internalizing it, embedding it inside of you so that it becomes second nature to you. And then what ideally happens after a year, unless you're me, (laughs) is that you become proficient. You've practiced these scales thousands and thousands of times and you've embedded them deep inside of you so that you don't even have to think about it. In fact, you become so proficient that you can, it's not just you can't just play your scales, but you begin stimming off of it, creating combinations and riffs that turn into melodies and music. And if you've had that experience, let me ask you whenever you're doing that, whenever you're making music, are you contradicting the scales? No, of course not. <laughs> no, uh, but. A year into playing an instrument, you're not going to practice your scales for three hours. Why? Because you have fulfilled the purpose of the scales. You've done exactly what they need to do, so you don't need to play them anymore, and I think that's exactly what Jesus is talking about in our verse this morning. Jesus says that the 613 commands in the law, they are good. Not that they were good, they are At their core, they are good, but the thing that they pointed to has now been fulfilled and we have to begin playing the music of the kingdom with our lives as we become the Jeremiah 31 people. So do we do away with the law? Jesus says, no, not even a stroke, not a dot is going to be removed from scripture. And then he continues, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It's one of those moments where it's like Jesus seems to be talking in circles. So, do we do the commands or are the commands fulfilled? And so now we need to be approaching them differently, like Jesus, just talk clear to me. And so he does just that. Verse 20 For I tell you, unless your righteousness, unless you being right towards others, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, just quickly, scribes, we can think of them as biblical scholars or uh, Bible professors and Pharisees as religious leaders. Maybe it's a pastor. Maybe it's someone you really look up to. These spiritual heroes that are in your life Jesus wants you to have in mind people who have made it their livelihood and their life's passion to study God's word and what it means for his people. And Jesus is saying, unless you're doing right by others, which is what righteousness means, surpasses that of these religious heroes that are surrounding you, then you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. right? It's like completely deflating. It's like, whoop, I'm out. I guess I'll go find another religion or pick up golf or something. Like there's no way I can meet that standard. Like what is Jesus calling me into? And if you have that thought, it's likely because you're thinking Jesus is telling his disciples, you just need to play the Pharisee game and just ratchet the intensity up a little bit. But if you think about that really hard, you know, Jesus didn't do that. So what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is requesting that those who have a desire to follow him, that it's nothing less than a renovation of a heart. And and honestly, folks, I don't know what to say, except that this seems to be one of those paradoxes in Jesus' sayings. And over the next six weeks, Jesus is going to expose issues of pride and of lust and of contempt, and of my ability to wiggle out and escape people really knowing who I am. He's going to talk about some deep-rooted issues. He's going to expose filth that lives inside of my heart and likely lives inside of your heart as well. And Jesus is going to call his people to a higher degree of obedience and faithfulness and relationship towards other. And here's the reality. You're going to listen for the next six weeks and it's going to seem impossible. And then at the end, as if that isn't enough, at the end of the six weeks, Jesus is going to make this statement. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Again, it's like, what am I supposed to do with that, Jesus? Because this isn't a joke. Jesus is not playing around here. Jesus is absolutely serious. He expects his followers to live this way. But at the same time, he surely knows that that kind of expectation on somebody's life, to live that way all the time, it's like trying to, it's like standing at the base of Mount Everest without having any training and saying, okay, I'm going to climb this thing. Like, it seems impossible. Who can live this way their entire life? And if you you hold on to that paradox, like, I think you got it. Like, I think the, the issue is right there. Jesus knows that he is both calling us to earnestly pursue a higher level of life, but at the same time, he knows that we're going to utterly fail. And throughout his entire life in ministry, he's going to throw these little grace parties with tax collectors and sex workers. And hey, guess what? If you were with us in person, or maybe you did it already, you got to participate in one of those grace parties as well. And we took the bread and we drank the juice. And so we're going to leave our failing for Jesus to alleviate, right? That's for him to take care of. We're merely going to focus on our pursuit to live this remarkable kind of life that Jesus has has and is going to spell out for us. It's a type of life that will not be achieved through moral relativism of you do you and I'll do me. And as as long as nobody gets hurt and everybody is happy, all is right in the world. no. Instead, the melody of God's kingdom strings from the scales that are embedded on our heart. And we have already discussed some of those. Some of those statutes that you read earlier. I'll read them really quick. We believe there is a loving Father in heaven who pursues us. We believe Jesus Christ is the only way to truth in life. We believe evil exists in our hearts and that pulls us away from God's wisdom. We believe God has told us to show our love for him through our love for others. We believe in a day when there will be no more tears and no more darkness. Do you believe those statements When it, with an unwavering confidence? And if you believe them, do they call you to action or do they just simply stand as statements that, yeah, I believe them, and then you go on with your regular life? Really spend a moment, scroll back up and spend a moment with those statements and then watch the next video for our call to action about what we should be doing with these statements.